without an independent highest court that commands respect for the integrity of its rulings, whether one agrees with them or not. Democracy and the rule of law hang by a narrow thread. Welcome to the narrow thread. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates across this fine nation. Also, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, around the world on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanket and Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me, insists me, from bradblog.com. <laughs> Don't look at me that way, Desi Doyen. Coming up, uh, the uh, the long, oh, it's the long-awaited return of yes. the great Mark Joseph Stern right Yay. here to the Bradcast. It's been a while. He will be here to help us try and make sense uh, out of the opinions seemingly both good and definitely bad by our far-right packed stolen and corrupted U.S. Supreme Court majority in uh, recent days at the end of last month. And by the way, it seems to me that Mark has cracked the code for how Chief Justice John Roberts is now actually manipulating the court's docket in order to allow some in the media to regard him and his radical right-wing court as much more moderate than he and they actually are. We will discuss that with Mr. Stern and what I see, at least, as the worst or the most disturbing ruling by the court at the end of their term this year as they wrapped up late last month, which uh, may not be the one that you or even he sees that way. We'll talk about that in a moment. Very quickly, uh, first, however, speaking of what the radical activists on the corrupt Roberts Trump McConnell court have now wrought. Well, we can now add Iowa to the list of states where Republicans who used to pretend they opposed big government coming between a doctor and their patient. The latest state, which has now adopted a forced birth policy on residents. Iowa's state legislature voted on Tuesday night in a single day special session called for the specific purpose only to ban almost all abortions. 
after around six weeks of pregnancy before most know that they are even pregnant. Republican lawmakers, which hold a majority in both the Iowa House and Senate, passed the anti-abortion bill after the Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, called the special session specifically to remove the right, the private right, to reproductive care in the state. The bill passed with exclusively Republican support in this rare one-day legislative session, which lasted more than 14 hours. As of now, the measure will take immediate effect after the government uh, governor signs it and will prohibit abortions after the first sign of fetal cardiac activity, usually around six weeks with some very limited exceptions for cases of rape or incest. How thoughtful of them. Republican lawmakers, by the way, rejected a number of amendments proposed by Democrats that would have expanded those exceptions. Abortion in the uh, in the state were uh, was previously allowed up to 20 weeks. Abortion providers challenged the ban in state court. On Wednesday, just hours after passage in the state legislature on the basis that it violates Iowans' state constitutional rights to abortion and substantive due process, as well as the state constitution's inalienable rights clause, which they argue guarantees those rights to women specifically and grants them equal protection under the law. The challengers are asking the court to temporarily prevent the law from going into effect on Friday when Republican Governor Kim Reynolds has indicated she intends to sign it. A hearing is scheduled for Friday afternoon in that case, according to court documents just prior to the governor's bill signing there. The, quote, the voices of Iowans and their democratically elected representatives cannot be ignored any longer, said the governor in a statement. Well, maybe uh, the voices of elected representatives, but not of actual Iowans. Apparently, those voices absolutely can be ignored. A Des Moines Register poll conducted earlier this year found that 61% of Iowa adults, 61% support legal abortion in all or most cases in the state. Just 35% said that it should be illegal in all or most cases. So apparently both the democratically elected representatives in the state legislature and the state's governor are more than happy to ignore the voices of Iowans. As state lawmakers debated the bill, crowds of protesters gathered in the Capitol on Tuesday in the rotunda in support of reproductive rights, chanting vote them out at Republican legislators. Their voices were definitely ignored. For now, we'll see what happens next year. Hmm. The legislation is the latest in a raft of anti-abortion laws passed in states around the country since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, ending the nationwide constitutional right to reproductive freedom. A number of states, including a swath of the southern U.S., have passed full bans on abortion without any exceptions for cases of rape or incest. The ACLU of Iowa, Planned Parenthood, and the Emma Goldman Clinic remain committed to protecting the reproductive rights of Iowans to control their bodies and their lives, their health, and their safety, said the ACLU of Iowa's executive director, Mark Stringer, in a statement, including 
filing a lawsuit to block this reckless, cruel law, he said. During a public hearing on Tuesday before the vote, lawmakers heard from advocates both for and against the bill, including medical professionals and reproductive rights activists who they urged, also ignored. Yes, they did, as they uh, urged the legislature to reconsider the bill, warning that it would cause immense societal harm, reduce bodily autonomy, and prevent physicians from caring for patients. Amy Bingaman, an obstetrician and gynecologist, told lawmakers you would be, quote, forcing a woman to a lifelong obligation which affects her education, her career, her family and community. And yes, her voice was absolutely ignored by GOP lawmakers. In the meantime, Planned Parenthood North Central States has said it will refer patients out of state if they're scheduled for abortions in the next few weeks. The organization, the largest abortion provider in the state, will continue to provide care to patients who present before cardiac activity is detected. If Iowans can't access abortions in state, only those with the necessary financial resources may be able to do elsewhere, Vox.com reports. And even then, they could face hurdles. Abortion access in the Midwest has severely con uh, contracted now since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade just last summer. Now, Wisconsin, Missouri, and the Dakotas have implemented bans on almost all abortions. Indiana will also implement its own ban starting next month in August. As Iowa joins those states, other states in the region will likely now be under further pressure to provide abortions to out-of-state patients. That includes, for example, Michigan, where voters... Oh, voters! I remember them! Voters resoundingly approved a ballot measure last fall to codify abortion rights into the state constitution. The state has now seen a significant increase in out-of-state patients in the last year, with Michigan doctors performing nearly twice as many abortions in 2022 as compared to 2021. That, according to state data obtained by Bridge, Michigan, uh, independent media outlet Planned Parenthood, which operates 14 clinics in the state, has seen its out-of-state patient load nearly triple since the end of Roe. Fifteen states have banned abortion at six weeks or earlier, with narrow exceptions, as Indiana and now Iowa are expected to join them to make it 17 states. Now, we've already seen massive reductions in care in other states that have enacted abortion bans. For example, in Texas, doctors are put now into the position of having to determine whether the life or health of the pregnant person is actually endangered. That has led to delays in performing medically necessary abortions putting patients at further risk for complications as some have been forced to carry unviable or even dead fetuses for months. Iowa's new measure will allow for abortions up until 20 weeks of pregnancy, but only under certain conditions of medical emergency to be determined by the government, not by, you know, medical professionals. And that big government interference between patients and doctors appears to be, well, just fine with pretty much all of the candidates who are now running for president on the Republican side of the aisle uh, for uh, 2024. Uh, though Mike Pence 
is is very proud, you'll be shocked to learn, very proud of going even further than the rest of the pack. The former vice president is, so far anyway, the only GOP candidate willing to call out loud for a federal ban on abortion at six weeks and for a ban on widely used abortion pills, even though they have a better safety record than penicillin or Viagra. But according to AP today... Pence believes that abortion should be banned even when a pregnancy isn't viable. That's a standard that would force a woman, force a woman to carry a pregnancy to term even when doctors have determined that there is no chance, zero chance, a baby will survive outside the womb. Because Mike Pence wants the mother to watch her child as it dies in front of her. Once an issue largely largely hidden from public view, AP notes, non-viable pregnancies have gained attention since the Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to an abortion last year, ushering in a wave of bans and restrictions in Republican-led states. Those moves have implications not only for unwanted pregnancies, but also for cases where women receive heartbreaking diagnoses often when they're months along into the pregnancies that were deeply desired. Doctors in some states risk felony convictions now that can carry five or ten years of mandatory prison time if others dispute their interpretation of what some complain are overly broad and confusing rules, I would argue purposely so, of exactly what qualifies as the health of the mother. Banning abortions in these cases, according to doctors, leads to outcomes that are both cruel and puts women's lives and mental health at risk. But apparently that's just fine with uh, folks like Mike Pence, folks like all of the lawmakers on the Republican side in Iowa. In states like Texas, Florida and Louisiana, women have described the anguish of being denied abortions even when they know their babies will be stillborn or die shortly after birth. Some have had to wait until they developed life-threatening infections for intervention. They have to wait until the woman is going to otherwise die. Others have spent thousands of dollars to travel to states where the procedure is still allowed. But that's the kind of freedom, freedom, (laughs) that Republicans are now calling for pretty much across the entire country since their corrupted U.S. Supreme Court has taken away the constitutional freedom, the constitutional right to an abortion. And though they won't yet say it out loud, don't be surprised when other GOP presidential candidates call for the once extreme position that Mike Pence is at least willing to say out loud. Spokespeople for former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, they both declined to say whether they back Pence's position regarding forcing a woman to carry around a dead fetus for months. And a spokesman for uh, Nikki, Hale, uh, let's see, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott's campaign, they pointed AP to an article which did not address the question of unviable pregnancies. And a spokesman for Nikki Haley. Remember, she's the reasonable one, right? Mm -hmm. She's the moderate. She said only that she, quote, 
will sign pro-life legislation that includes exceptions for rape, incest, and for the life of the mother, suggesting that she, too, uh, may be opposed to an exception for non-viable pregnancies. So that is your Republican Party today in these United States. I hear there's an election next year. There's even an election for some uh, this November. I hope that Americans are paying attention. Americans of all stripes and all parties. But that is the Republican Party today in the United States after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned its own 50-year precedent just one year ago. And where will we all be a year from now after this year's raft of rights-robbing rulings from the Roberts High Court? Well, the one and only Mark Joseph Stern joins us next to discuss that and much more right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. All right. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Just before our brief break last week over the 4th of July holiday, the U.S. Supreme Court wrapped up their very busy 2022 term for the year, as ever, in perfect time for their three-month break, during which at least some of the justices we now know wouldn't want to miss a single day of their undisclosed luxury all-expense-paid-by-right-wing billionaire private plane and mega-yacht vacations around the country and off in the world. But before they could accept this term's parting gifts or next term's friendly bribes, they closed out business with a bunch of landmark opinions that, like last year, will reverberate for years, if not generations to come in this nation. This year, however, the Roberts Court managed to throw a few bones to non-right-wingers in the final flurry of decisions with not terrible and even surprisingly good at times rulings on a number of issues, including opinions that allowed President Biden to make his own presidential decisions on immigration issues, if you can imagine such a thing, uh, a decision that protected some very important aspects of the federal Medicaid program, critically a ruling that did not strike down the last remaining key provisions of the landmark Voting Rights Act and might even allow minorities and our Democrats to pick up a few seats in the U.S. House next year. And, of course, in the case that we had been watching particularly closely over the past year, Moore v. Harper, Chief Justice John uh, Roberts and enough of the court's right-wingers also joined the court's remaining three liberal appointees to prevent the adoption of a far-right fringe constitutional theory that would have overturned hundreds of years of American election laws and given complete control to gerrymandered state legislatures to determine any and all such election laws in their states regarding federal elections, including the ability to ignore state constitutions and state Supreme Courts and gubernatorial vetoes in order to select 
any slate of presidential electors they wanted, even if the voters had chosen otherwise. Those not terrible and in some cases even good decisions came as a huge relief to many progressives this year, including yours truly. Though, as we had also worried at the time we reported on them, they did serve to mask a number of horrible rulings still to come before Clarence Thomas would be allowed to jet away for this year's GOP megadonor bonus prizes. The court's stolen, packed, and corrupted far-right 6-3 majority would soon revert to form in time to overturn their own decades-old precedents regarding race-based affirmative action for college admissions, though not other affirmative actions for admissions based on, for example, legacy admissions and those for the children of high-ticket donors. The court expanded newly discovered constitutional religious freedoms, allowing for web page designers to discriminate against LGBTQ plus customers based on imaginary, in fact, wholly fraudulent grievances. They picked up on last year's judicial activism by further restricting the EPA's ability to meet uh, mandates of landmark laws passed by Congress and signed by presidents, in this case, the Clean Water Act. And they determined that while forgiving millions of dollars in loans to so-called small businesses and cutting taxes for billionaires, well, that was just fine. But forgiving $10,000 to student loan borrowers during a national emergency in accordance with federal law, well, that's just a bridge too far for a president of the United States, or at least for this president of the United States. As our friends Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern, among the best Supreme Court journalists in the business, wrote at Slate.com last week at the end of another SCOTUS term in their piece headlined, John Roberts is winning, the rest of us are losing. As the Supreme Court term crashed to a close in a string of stinging defeats to progressives, a familiar narrative began shaping up in the public discourse. The court had, on balance, remained largely loyal to the conservative legal project while delivering just enough compromises to quell any meaningful challenge to its power and legitimacy. The story is the one Chief Justice John Roberts would probably like to have you tell. It is both descriptively accurate and superficial to the point of distortion. The court did indeed refuse an invitation to clobber several liberal precedents and policies which had the effect of leaving the law in place. A set of status quo decisions dressed up as liberal so-called wins it then used the resulting good press as cover to pulverize laws that directly improve the lives of tens of millions of Americans, including the most vulnerable and underprivileged among us. In swinging at only some of the worst pitches served up by radical right-wing controlled states, Stern and Lithwick note, Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, both embracing the Chief Justice's tried-and-true formula of years past, joined a series of decisions with the chief and the court's liberals to rebuff some of the most radical Republican efforts to yank the law far rightward, while still ticking off a bunch of right-wing policy agenda items that are too unpopular and misery-inducing to pass via, you know, the small-d democratic process. 
After last term's eruption of molten, cruel conservatism, they write, the 6-3 majority has sought safer political ground without sacrificing any of its most cherished goals. Joining us now for uh, more on that and an end-of-term wrap-up, as well as an unvarnished look at what really just happened and what lies ahead for this corrupted court in their next destructive term, is our friend Mark Joseph Stern, who has long covered the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and LGBTQ issues, and much more for Slate.com, and uh, arguably better than just about anyone in the business. Oh, Mr. Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure, and it's been too long. It has been too long. Well, you're a busy guy now, tough get, so I'm glad you're able to uh, to join us today, sir. Despite what appeared to be the uh, uh, genuine early victories for progressives and small-D Democrats in, in this uh, final flurry from the court of opinions this year, you and Dahlia note that this term was not, in fact, quote, some kind of triumph for moderation, considering the decisions that commentators have deemed huge victories for the left. What are many in the media missing when they place some of the court's not terrible opinions this term up against the horrible ones to to say that, well, uh, the court moved to the center. It was a mix of good news and bad for both the right and the left. So I think one thing that narrative misses is the fact that the court really shouldn't have been hearing a lot of these cases in the first place. And so by deciding them in a so-called liberal way, They create this image of balance and moderation that it's, it's not really deserved. Um, there's no better example than that of the independent state legislature case that you were discussing, mm-hmm. where North Carolina Republicans claimed that state legislatures have this total unreviewable power over election law. Um, you know, that was all settled in the state courts. Um, there was absolutely no reason for the Supreme Court to intervene, and yet it reached down and grabbed that case. And by deciding it in a somewhat moderate way, although Roberts left the door open for mischief, as he so often does, Mm -hmm. the court got great headlines as being so moderate and thoughtful. That is a trick that the Chief Justice Mm. is very good at playing on the media. It's not one that I think we should fall for, given how obvious it is and how many decisions that he really cares about end up coming out so far to the right over and over again. So is your suggestion here that Roberts is purposely taking uh, cases, picking up cases that will freak folks out on the left, only to then come in with a a so-called moderate ruling or a a ruling that leaves the status quo in place in order to give cover to the far-right radical activist uh, legislation from the bench that they're doing in all of these other cases? I mean, that's exactly what I'm saying, Brad, and I don't think it's it's really uh, up for debate at this stage. If you look at the court's docket, um, you know, they have consistently taken up these cases that sort of seem designed to terrify liberals. You know, mm-hmm. the headlines are Supreme Court will consider whether to allow Republicans to rig elections in this instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the, when the case comes down in a way that's not the end of the world, they get good headlines. That serves as cover, I think, mm-hmm. for the Chief Justice and the other conservatives to make even more mischief in the other cases. They're sort of building up legitimacy in the bank Mm -hmm. so that they can spend it down later on other decisions that go out far, far to the right. 
And that's a dynamic that's very easy to miss, um, but it's also one that's relatively novel for the Supreme Court. You know, for almost all of its history, Congress actually dictated what cases the Supreme Court had to hear and could not hear, and its docket was dictated by the people's representatives for the most part. Only in the last 40 years or so has the court been given near total discretion over which cases it Mm. decides to take, which is part of Congress's um, near absolute abdication of oversight of the judicial branch. Mm-hmm. And that has led to this weird situation where we pretend as though these cases emerge out of nowhere, when in reality the court is building a very careful story mm-hmm. using each individual case to try to show something about the court that it thinks will appeal to the public. Fascinating. And yeah, when you put that, when you and Dahlia put that all together and, and I read that, it was like, ah. I get it now. That does make sense. And so I want to talk a little bit later about some of the cases that they have picked up that are uh, for next term that are already freaking out uh, some on the left, yours truly included, uh, some, uh, that, that maybe I shouldn't be uh, quite as worried about. We'll get to that in a minute. But, yeah, if you look at all of the cases here that we regarded as, you know, good news from the court, and they they were good news in that they didn't destroy these laws, but in many of these cases, uh, Moore v. Harper, the uh, Voting Rights Act upholding the the, the ban on, you know, racial gerrymandering in Section 2, even the immigration case, uh, which, you know, allowed the president to set his own immigration laws, rules that he has, you know, as they have for hundreds of years in all of these cases. uh, What is great about them, their opinions, is that they didn't overturn existing law. Basically, they didn't do anything. They allowed us to continue the the status quo. That's our victory. Exactly. The liberal victories, I'm using air quotes there, Um, the liberal victory simply leaves the law as it was, leaves the law in place without making any changes, whereas the conservative victories radically overhaul the law in ways that were unimaginable as recently as five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. That's also something that's very difficult, I think, to explain to people who don't watch the court closely, Mm -hmm. but becomes blazingly obvious once you apply a little bit of scrutiny to how this court operates. And uh, so I've got an opinion uh, on what I see in in some ways as the court's most disturbing uh, opinion of the year uh, that I want to make the case for with you and and get your thoughts on. But before I do that, and this may be a difficult question to answer, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, but what do you, uh, as someone who actually understands this stuff, uh, see as the uh, worst ruling this year and and why? You know... I'm going to go out on a limb here and Mm -hmm. say that I I think the student debt decision is the worst ruling of this term. Not because it will necessarily have the biggest negative impact, although you could certainly make that case. You know, John Roberts is picking the pockets of 43 million Americans, Mm -hmm. taking $10,000 away from them. Um, But, you know, the, the very premise of this case is BS. There is absolutely no real controversy for the court to adjudicate here. Mm -hmm. No party has standing or even a remotely plausible claim to standing. Mm -hmm. And the court's interpretation of the federal statute in question 
is unrecognizable under any theory of statutory construction. Yes. I mean, this is just John Roberts being vengeful toward Joe Biden and uh, howling in rage that the president would dare try to help working class people. It bears very little resemblance to the law and hardly pretends to. And for that reason, I do find it the worst and most disturbing, just because it feels like the mask drops in that opinion, and John Roberts shows us who he really is. Now, uh, you went out on a limb with that, and guess what? That was the opinion that I wanted to, that I saw also as the most uh, disturbing opinion of the year. So you've completely stolen my thunder with that, Mark. (laughs) But uh, actually, I'm out on that limb with you, but for maybe a different reason? I don't know. And I want to be clear. You know, there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of bad decisions, a lot of them like, you know, the racist affirmative action decision, the uh, the dumb arguably fraudulent 303 creative website decision allowing uh, you know people to discriminate against gay and trans people and not just web designers but pretty much everyone but they feel like those decisions to me feel like they are of a piece with not just last year's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, but a long list of activist right-wing ideological legislation from the bench. There, you know, that's that's the Federalist Society. Uh, long list of projects that we uh, expect. They're horrible. We hate them, but they're expected. But here, to me, this one was such a blatant disregard for the rule of law that they had to go out and create pretty much out of whole cloth a reason to overturn it because there was no legitimate ones. They came up with this major questions doctrine that they also used last year in striking down the EPA's ability to regulate carbon pollution. Can you explain what this major questions doctrine is, and we can discuss why I think this is just so dangerous? So the major questions doctrine stands for the proposition that anytime five justices don't like something that a presidential administration does, they can strike it down for any reason they want. Um, that is barely an exaggeration. Uh, Justice Kagan has called this a get-out-of-text-free card. And the basic idea is that uh, when you're looking at a so-called major question, Mm -hmm. which is a totally subjective standard that is simply what five people on this court think is major, um, that you have to apply special heightened scrutiny uh, to the law Uh, that ostensibly provides authority for the policy. So in this case, the student loan policy, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a law that specifically says during an emergency, Mm -hmm. and everyone agrees COVID counts, the Secretary of Education can waive or modify (laughs) debt uh, for those who are affected by the emergency. Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, waive or modify is pretty clear. When Mm -hmm. you waive or modify debt, it means you could reduce or zero out debt. That is pretty much how the English language works. Uh But John Roberts says, no, because this is so major, we need more from Congress. We need an explicit series of sentences and declarations from Congress Mm -hmm. that says in bright blinking lights, we intend this provision to be used to waive $430 billion worth of debt. And without that, the court refused to uphold the policy. And I think you can see just from this example, though there are more, how this is not a legitimate tool of statutory interpretation, because it means that the court can set aside what the actual words of the law say 
and just apply their own opinion under the very thin guise mm-hmm. of uh, trying to uphold Congress's will. Exa- even though the law is very specific, uh, you know, the, the Secretary of Education can waive or modify these loans in a, a national emergency. They claim to be, you know, textualist, what what the law actually says. And then when they run out of reasons to strike something down, it seems like they just say, oh, it's a it's a major it's just too big. It's a major. I mean, if it wasn't four hundred and thirty billion dollars of student loan uh, uh, principal that would be uh, wiped out here, would it would it be okay if it was only one billion dollars worth of uh, principal? Would that somehow be constitutional? Under well, this you just premise? have to take a head count of the Supreme Court and see what people think, uh, which is not, again, how constitutional law is supposed to work. Right. Um, I'll just add that, you know, when you're dealing with the federal government, mm-hmm. every policy is going to be major. Yeah. Like, every policy is going to affect as many as 330 million Americans. <laughs> right. Every policy is going to have a fiscal impact of more than billions of dollars. Yeah. And so this is really just an excuse in every single case for the court to ignore the law that Congress passed, perversely while claiming to honor Congress's wishes. And that's exactly what the court did last term in striking down the Clean Power Act, saying, well, we see that these words might authorize what the Biden administration wants to do here, um, but it's not clear enough to us for it to, you know, satisfy this major questions doctrine that Congress really wanted the uh, the systems that the Biden administration is trying to put in place. Well, who says that that's how Congress has to legislate? Who says that it, the courts can demand some extra special clarity when they think it's a big deal? That is not anywhere in the Constitution, to my knowledge. Right. And it's really not how the court has done things until very, very recently. Yep. It, is, it is a new invention that the court has been wielding quite recklessly. And that is why I was so concerned about this, is because, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that we, we know that the, you know, the, the, the right-wingers want to strike down affirmative action. It doesn't make, I'm not saying that those are less horrible, but the fact that they're sort of inventing this doctrine to turn down anything they want, I mean, isn't on its face major questions isn't anything that the court decides to hear a major question almost by definition? Right. I mean, almost all of these cases have divided the lower courts in different ways. Uh-huh. That's why the court picks them up, right? right? So, yes, it is inherently and definitionally major for the Supreme Court to be deciding it. And, you know, Amy Coney Barrett actually seems to understand that this is an indefensible doctrine. And so she wrote this very odd concurring opinion in the student debt case trying to justify it. But all she ends up doing is making the case for why it's so bogus, because she, she tries to use these examples to show when words should not mean what they say <laughs> over and over again. You know, well, the words might seem to mean X, but when, when you really think about it carefully, they mean something else. Again, that is mind reading. That is having a seance with a Congress from the past. That is not just interpreting the law or, as Roberts might say, calling balls and strikes. Exactly. And if I'm not mistaken, the major questions doctrine has so far been applied, as you noted last year, in the uh, clean power plan, whether uh, EPA can regulate carbon emissions, essentially. And that was just too big of a a question. It had to be specifically uh, decided by Congress even though it appears that Congress already, you know, decided it. But 
if they don't say those words, then it can't be done. And then we have the same thing happening here in the student loans. That's a major question that we must turn to Congress to decide, never mind that they already decided it in the law. Are there any situations, Mark Joseph Stern, where... The Supreme Court has turned away something like, I don't know, it seems like, you know, a federal national right to abortion. That seems like a major question. Is there any such uh, situation where a a right wing priority has been turned away because it was just too much of a major question? How about uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to construct a wall on the southern border? How about blocking hundreds of millions of Muslim foreign nationals from entering the country? In those cases, the major questions doctrine was mysteriously absent because it was Donald Trump who wanted to enact the policy. Mm-hmm. The answer to your question is no, of course. When Republicans are in the White House, every question becomes minor. But when a Democrat enters, suddenly they're too big uh, for the president to be able to enact. And I think, you know, we we will see when the next Republican enters the White House, if the court is consistent on this, Mm -hmm. I certainly would not hold my breath. As a matter of fact, this same law, wasn't it the HEROES Act that uh, Biden was uh, trying to use here to uh, uh, forgive these uh, student loan borrowers? Didn't Trump use that exact same law to pause all student loan payments for years, but was not stopped by the court? Yes, indeed. And in (laughs) fact, that pause ended up costing many, many billions of dollars to the federal government. Uh And yet, the court does not even suggest in its decision that Trump's pause on student loan repayment was illegal. It only becomes illegal when Joe Biden does it because he has a D next to his name. And that's why this is so important to me, because it seems like they've got, uh, you know, various things sort of baked in the cake, uh, you know, arguments that they have been making for years against certain disfavored policies on the right. But then for everything else, if they don't have, uh, you know, a specific legal argument, they can just claim major questions. And it seems like this sets up, especially if this is now the new precedent, uh, this sets up. I mean, they could they can use this for really anything that they simply don't like for decades and generations at this point. Well, and it's going to get even worse, unfortunately, because the court has already taken up a case for next term that's Mm -hmm. designed to overturn Chevron deference, Mm -hmm. which is this principle that the judiciary should generally defer to the executive branch's interpretation of an ambiguous law because an executive branch is accountable to the people through the president, and judges are not. They have life tenure. They get to do whatever they want forever. And when the court overturns Chevron deference, that is really going to be, I think, the death knell for democratic presidential latitude in addressing the problems of the day through existing law. You know, the court has created this weird paradigm where any Democrat in the White House has to persuade Congress to enact sweeping new legislation, whereas Republicans get to come in and start enacting their agenda on day one yep. by just pouring over the existing law books and finding some random phrase that seems to support their theory. This is really bad. This is not normal. Let me take a quick break here, come back with uh, one more quick segment with Mark Joseph Stern to talk about, uh, A, potential solutions, if they exist, for this new abnormal on the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, all the fun we can look towards uh, for next term, as the court has uh, already uh, picked up some major cases and some major questions for the next term. Quick break, and we're back with Mark Joseph Stern. I'm Brad Friedman, and you're listening to The Bradcast.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Working on it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with the great Mark Joseph Stern uh, of slate.com where he covers the U.S. Supreme Court and much more. Uh, thanks for sticking with us, Mark. Uh, I, you know, I'm in in one sense uh, speaking about the decisions made at the end of the term. I'm I'm sort of glad in one way that Roberts sort of tried to soften the blow uh, by putting the better rulings, if we can call them that, on you know democracy, voting, Medicaid, immigration, et cetera, up front, because it leaves us at the end of the term. With the reminder of who these people, yes, including John Roberts, really are. He is no great moderating hero, is he? Because he sure tries to pull that one off when convenient. No, of course not. I, I mean, what Roberts is, is very uh, adept at doing is creating this fake middle ground where, again, he'll leave the law where it is or maybe even inch it further to the right, but decline some very big swing coming from a deep red state or a very conservative lower court. And this is a dynamic we're seeing a lot, especially with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is stacked with crazy Trump people. Um, the Fifth Circuit keeps deciding these cases in truly uh, abhorrent ways mm -hmm. that are d totally disrespecting all known precedent. Uh, and, and the Supreme Court keeps having to correct them. And Robert seems to really like that, because when he corrects the Fifth Circuit's crazy conservative decisions, he always frames it as some victory for moderation mm -hmm. and compromise. But again, it's not. Mm -hmm. This is only happening because the judges on the lower courts are so far to the right mm -hmm. that they make this Supreme Court look moderate. And that's going to be the, the tale of next term. We already have a bunch of cases from the Fifth Circuit that are going to the Supreme Court's docket for next term, where the court's probably going to rule the right way. That will look like a victory for moderation if you squint, but in reality, it will just uphold the status quo. And I want to run down the list of some of those momentarily, but I'm wondering, you know, how do we... And I realize you may not have the answer here, but I, I, I still have to ask the question, how do we solve the mess that is not only this disastrous court, uh, Supreme Court, but now federal court, which has been so polluted with, uh, you know, Trump nominees that, uh, Mark, you and I have been uh, talking about on this show now for the past four or five years. I mean, are we just at the point where it's a matter of waiting until enough right-wingers on the Supreme Court somehow you know, leave during a Democratic administration somehow that the balance of the court can be changed. Is there anything else that actually can be done at this point? So, you know, obviously Congress could add seats to the Supreme Court. Democrats had uh, a trifecta and declines to do that last time around. Um, we'll see what happens in the future, but it doesn't seem like the Democratic Party is 
very eager to take a, a frontal assault on this problem. That leaves some sort of half steps. And one that I really strongly believe in is expanding seats on the lower courts mm-hmm. uh, so that President Biden mm-hmm. can alter their balance uh, all across the country, even without touching the Supreme Court, which would really go a long way toward addressing some of the crises mm-hmm. we have right now. You know, so many of the cases this term started when conservatives walked into a conservative judge's courtroom and got a nationwide injunction against the Biden administration, and uh, the appeals court upheld it, right? Mm -hmm. This is happening almost every month now, if not more Mm -hmm. frequently, and that is a sickness in the lower courts that Congress has the power to solve. Until very recently, until the 2000s, in fact, Congress routinely added seats to the lower courts under Democratic and Republican presidents alike. We have suddenly stopped, and it is Mm. creating crises in federal courts around the country. The Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the scrupulously nonpartisan administrative body of the federal courts, is begging Congress to add dozens and dozens of new judgeships, Mm. but Congress isn't doing it because Democrats are afraid of Republicans. Mm. I think that that is indicative of this broader pathology in the Democratic Party, where they're afraid to use hardball with the courts, whether it's the Supreme Court or the lower courts, and until that stops, I really don't see a solution. Begging the question as to how bad this has to become before the Democrats do say, you know what, enough is enough. We have to do something here. Uh, How many rights do we have to lose? How corrupt does this court have to obviously get? I mean, Mark, you and I haven't even talked over the past few months since, uh, you know, one revelation after another about our friend Clarence Thomas has, has just sort of blown away. You know, we all knew how corrupt he was. At least we thought until we learned that he was even more corrupt than that. Uh, All right. I don't know that I have a question involved in that. It's just it blows me away. It's like uh, it's really interesting to talk to lawyers and even judges in other countries who think that the way we do things is absolutely insane, uh, and they cannot understand how the world's greatest democracy, allegedly, mm. allows life-tenure judges to engage in such brazenly unethical behavior and wield totally unchecked power for decades and decades. We are the only country that does it this way, and I think there's a reason why our peer nations have chosen a very different path. <laughs> and then when you find out about it, there's nothing you can do. Nobody disagrees <laughs> that Clarence Thomas did all these things, but good luck taking any step to do anything about it right now. Precisely. Uh, unbelievable. All right, very quickly, Mark, um, you, you mentioned in the previous segment that uh, we are now on to John Roberts' game, that he pulls, uh, you know, that they accept certain cases to freak all of us on the left out, only to say, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll leave that as is. We're not going to change that. So suddenly they look moderate. What kind of cases do we have to look forward to that they've already accepted for next term that we should either freak out about or not freak out about? So there are two big ones, both coming out of the Fifth Circuit. So they, they fall right into this dynamic I've mm-hmm. been describing, um, where the Fifth Circuit took huge swings, and I think the Supreme Court's going to have to rein them in. In one of these cases, the Fifth Circuit held that people who are under restraining orders for domestic violence and abuse have a Second Amendment right to possess firearms, and that the government may not disarm individuals because they have been adjudged by a civil court to pose a danger to the life and limb of their uh, friends and family and loved ones. 
Um, that is an insane decision. It is probably consonant with what Clarence Thomas said in last term's big gun case, but I do think that Kavanaugh and Roberts will draw the line there, maybe Amy Coney Barrett as well. And then there's another case out of the Fifth Circuit that essentially seeks to destroy the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, blow up the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, actually really every federal agency that helps to protect individual rights, the economy, helps to regulate industry, uh, and hold that they are all unconstitutional. There's also a separate but related case Mm -hmm. that seeks to blow up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and force the federal courts to simply abolish it root and branch. Those are the cases that I think the Supreme Court will probably take a, quote, moderate approach to. Uh And again, no one should be fooled. The fact that the crazy terrorists on the Fifth Circuit went so far out on a limb that this Supreme Court had to rein them back in does not mean that this court is moderate. It just means that there is still a line that these six conservatives won't cross, but add a seventh and who knows what will happen. I'm going to ask Desi to mark this uh, this segment of this show to play a year from now if you turn out to be right on those two cases. And I, and I think you very well might be. I think you are now you and Dahlia spelled it out. I think you are now on to these guys and to what they are doing at least oddly enough i hope so because otherwise i am going to spend the next year uh panicking and freaking out about some of these cases that oh it's unconstitutional to ban a guy who has been involved in five shootings from having a gun uh, after uh, he's under domestic violence orders it's it's just it's a mind-blowing case I can't believe it's even coming up before the Supreme Court. But now that you have uh, cracked the code, Mark, I think it all makes a lot more sense. Uh, Well, I appreciate giving you a kind of uh, skeleton key uh, here. But, you know, again, record this conversation, come back to it in the year. I could be very wrong. And if so, I really fear for the future of our country. I fear for the future of our country, whether you are wrong or right in this particular matter, given what we have to deal with. Mark Joseph Stern, great, as always, to talk to you. It has been too long. You have been very busy. I would let folks know who have been listening to uh, Mark over many, many years on the broadcast that he is showing up more and more on the TV machine in places like MSNBC, although not for nearly long enough. So I'm glad we're able to get you, my friend, uh, for uh, much longer, because you got a lot of stuff that people need to hear, and I'm glad we're able to let you say it here. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Brad. Thank you, brother. Mark Joseph Stern, you can find his work at Slate.com. You can follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC, where he, of course, covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much more for Slate. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And, by the way, uh, I mean that about MSNBC. They let him on for like two minutes. And I then, know. Uh, and they're so questions. missing out I on know. what he has to say. Because he's really good, yes. not just on our show, but he's really good on, on the, the TV, TV machine, well, too. And yet they ask two questions. Uh, thank you very much, Mark <laughs> I know. Now, I really hope, I really hope that Mark is wrong in his prediction that we're going to have uh, things to be very upset about in the next <laughs> term, especially the expected ruling on the Chevron deference that will have a huge impact on whether any future Democratic administration can do anything when it comes to protecting the environment, uh, addressing climate change, Mm -hmm. addressing
addressing environmental injustice and pollution. Well, and basically, just to make sure that folks understand what that is, this is, you know, the right has long hated the Chevron, the so-called Chevron doctrine, which gives deference in, yes, major questions (laughs) to experts. At federal agencies. Uh, so scientists. The question is the scientists, exactly. Who know so, more than judges. So that's what they used to defer to following a ruling. I don't remember what the year was, but it was uh, uh, regarding the EPA when Neil Gorsuch's Mom. mother yes. ran it. I know. And they actually found in her favor in that, in what became known as the Chevron Doctrine, that you should defer to the experts at federal agencies rather than, you know, private corporations uh, like Chevron. And now uh, Neil Gorsuch may be involved in overturning that very uh, uh, important doctrine. Because it turned out that, you know, Democrats and environmental justice organizations discovered that, oh, we can use that, too. And so now they want to take that tool away that requires the federal government to actually follow through, say, like on the EPA's mandate, to protect public health and the environment. I will also add, before we got to get out here, uh, that Mark's uh, the, the John Roberts trick that, the one uh, Mark trick. points to, yeah, it makes a lot more. What John Roberts has been doing actually makes a lot more sense to me today. Now that he has explained it, I mean, I understood that he was, you know, would would put the 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 rulings that would make lefties feel better up front, so they wouldn't be so crushed when the hammer fell, right? But now I understand that they're actually, you know, manipulating the docket to do exactly that. Yeah. It makes everything put in much more better perspective when you understand it that way. Uh, and always better perspective when Mark Joseph Stern is here to uh, help us understand it. <laughs> yes. we got to get out. My thanks again to Mark, to our producer, Desi Doyne, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always greatly appreciated, always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show, want to give it another listen, want to share it with someone you love or hate, (laughs) you can download it for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'd love to hear from you. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Oh, and all of this made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate or just hit any old donate button at bradblog.com. You'll find me on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at The Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1850. That was the birthday of Oscar Niebe. Niebe was one of eight men convicted of inciting violence at a workers' rally at Haymarket Square in Chicago in 1886. He was born in New York City, where he became a skilled tinsmith. He moved to Chicago in 1877, where he worked at the Adams Westlake Manufacturing Company. He was fired and blacklisted when he tried to organize his fellow workers. This, however, did not stop his organizing efforts. 
Oscar founded his own business, the Acme Yeast Company, and turned his attention to organizing brewery workers. He was active in the Chicago Central Labor Union. By 1886, the labor movement was growing in power and action in Chicago. On May 1st, thousands took to the streets in strikes and demonstrations for the eight-hour workday. Three days later, a bomb was thrown by an unknown assailant at a workers' rally protesting police violence against demonstrators. No one knows to this present day who threw the bomb. Eight men were tried and convicted for the crime. Oscar Neby was sentenced to 15 years in prison in Joliet, Illinois. Four of his fellow accused were executed by the hangman's rope. After six years in prison, Neby was pardoned by Illinois Governor John Peter Altgeld. His first wife died shortly after the trial. It is said she died of a broken heart. At his trial, Neby wrote, quote, I have been in the labor movement since 1875. I have seen how the police have trodden on the constitution of this country and crushed the labor organizations. I am sorry I am not to be hung with the rest of the men. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2.